2: Hi, FT Weekend listeners. I'm Lulu, a producer on this show.
1: This week, Lila's away, so we're bringing you one of our favourite episodes from the Archive. It's a conversation between Lila and Mashama Bailey, last year's James Beard Chef of the Year, at her restaurant, The Grey, in Georgia. Enjoy the episode.
2: Lila will be back next week.
0: This white and blue glass is called vitrolite. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it's March, and baby. I'm in Savannah, Georgia, outside of the famed restaurant, The Gray. Was- the managing partner, John no O'Morrisano, is showing so me around. One
0: of the first things we wanted to do was put the facade back to what it was, except that no one makes vitrolite
2: anymore because John O's white. He's got a handlebar mustache and glasses and tattoos. He looks like a hipster from New York, which he is. From the street, the building looks like a vintage diner with shiny, curved windows.
0: Um, and this was a segregated lunch counter called the Union News Cafe. Um, which we walk
2: busy. through the doors and pass the kitchen on the right. Then the restaurant opens into a beautiful, high-ceilinged, art deco dining room. Its centerpiece is a sunken, curved, eat-at bar. It feels grand.
0: The bus terminal was the first fully air-conditioned bus terminal in the South.
2: We keep going across the dining room into the back. The back is small and cramped. It has low ceilings. The server station is back here and the bathrooms. If you didn't know the history of this space, you probably wouldn't remember it.
0: And then we walk through and we come to sort of the darkest part of the history of the space, which is the colored waiting room. And the colored, um, that was the colored women's room and the colored men's room.
2: Never had the building was once a segregated Greyhound bus station from 1938 to 1964. It's a building with a lot of history, and Jono knows it well. He bought it nine years ago, and he spent years restoring it. But today, it's home to one of America's most important black chefs. One of its most important chefs, period. Her name is Mishama Bailey. She and Jano have been business partners since 2014.
0: walked in here today, it was like an angle We can't spend all the money on air conditioning. I
1: don't spend any money. (laughs) (laughs) All I do is make money, baby!
2: (laughs) A month ago, Mashama was named Outstanding Chef by the prestigious James Beard Awards. That makes her, this year, the best chef in America. It's like winning best director at the Oscars. Mashama is the first black woman chef to hold the title, and one of two black women to have won a James Beard Award ever. And Mashama isn't just a black chef. She's a chef who's devoted herself to unearthing the history of African-American cooking, both through research and through creative guesswork. Because throughout American history, Black people have played a massive role in defining American food. But most of their contributions haven't been acknowledged or documented from the slave trade on. Today, we spend some time at the Gray to learn about Mashama and her passion for finding Black cuisine's untold history and building on it.
1: There's some food that's indigenous to this country. And I think that the people who cook this food really weren't given the opportunity to actually express how they use the ingredients that were grown here or from here.
2: Mashama says that Americana food has been defined by colonial settlers and wealthy Americans versus Native Americans who knew the land and African Americans who cooked much of the food.
1: There is a correlation between Africa and American food um, and also, you know, a correlation with Native American foods that I think that people of color and people who are poor in this country understand and can relate to. And I think that that is what American food really is.
2: We also talked to Steven Satterfield. He's the host of the Netflix docuseries High on the Hog. Stephen has been integral to documenting the larger movement of reclaiming the history of African-American food. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. The story of how Mashama Bailey became America's hottest chef starts with that segregated bus station that's now her restaurant. In the years before, Mashama was working at the New York restaurant Prune, led by chef Gabrielle Hamilton. And Hamilton thought she was ready for more. So she put Mashama in touch with Jono. Jono had just bought that building, and he needed a chef.
1: I did not think I was going to do this project. Now, I sat in Jono's office, and we talked, and we got along, and we we really, genuinely connected right away. Mm -hmm. And he showed me the plans, like the blueprints for the building. And it was like 250 seats. And I was just like, I can't cook for this many people. I was like, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. But then he started talking about the building and he was like, but then this is the main reading room and the colored waiting room is like here. And I was like, what? The colored waiting room? He goes, yeah, this is where the colored waiting room was for the bus station. It was built in 1938. And I said, is it still intact? And he goes, yeah, it's still the way it was. And I was like, Oh, well, I got to go see that.
2: Mashama had actually lived in Savannah for a few years as a kid. Her mom is from Georgia. Her grandmother lived there all her life. She had happy memories there. So when Mashama went down to Savannah, she immediately felt plugged into something.
1: So I didn't even get on that plane thinking like, all right, yeah, I'm going to get this gig and I'm going to be this business partner. I went just to see a piece of history in the South. And as soon as I walked into space, I was like, oh, okay. All right. What I was it. it? It just felt like it was my space. It just felt like it belonged to me. I was just like, this is, I, I belong here and I'm supposed to do this.
2: I spent several days in Savannah to write a profile of Mishama for the FT Weekend magazine. I knew she was doing something important, and I wanted to pinpoint what was so unique about the gray. I knew she did things like combining grits with foie gras, elevating what we think of as southern food. And I knew her ingredients came from the region. She'll make a Cumberland sauce with hibiscus instead of port wine because it grows like crazy in Georgia. But what I started to realize when I was there is that it's the way that Mishama combines inventive cooking with a sense of history that makes it so singular. Those parts of Black history that have been lost... She's feeling her way back to them by going back to the Georgia Lowcountry and getting to know the physical land, its agriculture, and what it's capable of producing. That afternoon, at the Gray, I met Trevor Elliott, Mashama's chef de cuisine. Here he is preparing the staff for service. Everyone is gathered together in the main dining room, and Mashama and Jono are looking on.
0: Uh, Happy Wednesday, everybody. We have a few changes for you on the menu tonight. our first course on water is tuna crudo. We're starting little-
2: Trevor is Mishama's second-in-command. They come up with ideas together, and he translates her ideas into daily menus. I found him in the kitchen because I wanted to ask him how they explore historic dishes from the region if so much of it isn't documented.
0: Well, Mishama's super obsessed with both um, cookbooks. I think that's that's one place where we really hit it off and got really excited going through recipes from you know the 1870s yeah when you walk to savannah there's all these names like the ogle and like these old generals and revolutionary war figures um and back then there were no restaurants like the wives of these rich and powerful men would entertain and they had these great books in their house and a lot of them were anonymous you know african-american books yeah um that were really brilliant like they were these great scientific minds behind cooking, Mm. and you read these old books, you can only imagine, there's no pictures in them, so you just read something like jellied hamfoot or something, it sounds so weird, it really gets the gears going.
2: That night, I ate at the Gray, and I knew I would remember it. The restaurant was buzzing, I had this catfish dip that looked like a familiar blobby potato salad, but the flavor was layered and exciting. It turns out the catfish had been cooking in their smoker all day. At one point, I looked up and saw two original bus station clocks hanging on the opposing walls. They were running, but they were telling the entirely wrong time. Jono told me later that they couldn't get them to sink. But it felt right to me, because when you're in there, it feels like time is an illusion. Like you're somehow in the past and in the future all at once. The next day, I sat down with Mishama. We found a quiet spot in the private dining room, which used to be the white women's powder room. Okay, well, first of all, um, the meal last night was like, um, I didn't know what to expect, but it was like everything that I hoped it would Aww, be. And more. Really that's awesome. Delicious. Thank you. Yeah. Um, one thing that I was talking with Trevor about yesterday was um, he mentioned that when you have been collaborating together that you were finding these old cookbooks from like the 1800s and, and reinventing those recipes a little bit. And I felt that with sort of like the foie gras terrine and the, right. and the catfish dip, like yeah. sort of like they're like the ideal version of this kind of like Americana mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about that.
1: Um, I Yeah, I think, the way i look at it is that i try to figure out like what were people eating in this region 100 years ago 200 years ago does it still exist a lot of things don't exist anymore like um hearts of palm was a very big thing in this reason i think they called it swamp cabbage and so i'm like sort of obsessed with trying to find a farmer who will take the time to grow it but i think it's one of those things where it was like it was here and then they just depleted the resources so now they don't grow it here anymore mm. um but finding those types of dishes Our finding those types of recipes, I think, really helps us resonate with the elders in the community. Mm -hmm. And I think things like the smoked catfish dip is something that um, would resonate because it's almost like it's a step away from like a tuna fish salad. Something so familiar, something that we all grew up with, something that's um, been in the household almost on a weekly basis. It's inexpensive. You can feed a lot of people with it. But it's like this elevated way to use, you know, main parts of fish, and also we can use scraps of fish.
2: You said last night, or yesterday afternoon, one of the last things as we were talking about um, the food and how you, you um, are being recognized, you said, I just don't want to appropriate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm curious what you meant by that.
1: Um, I just don't want to cook Mexican food, oh, you right. know? our Italian food. I don't want to be a Mexican chef or an Italian chef or a French chef, you know? I think I want to pull inspiration. I mean, I think I'm going to. I think I do pull inspiration from those from the heritage of those beautiful cuisines. But I don't want to be known for that. And I think for me, in my mind, that's appropriation. Yeah. It won't change the narrative, I don't think, if I did that. I think because when I was first came, when I first was thinking about a menu, it was mostly Italian. Mm-hmm. And after a while, I was like, I'm not Italian. Man. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm Black, so yeah. why, like, yeah, can I put a pasta on the menu? Yeah, but how could I make a pasta that you would see in a Black home, mm-hmm. you know, or you would see on a Black menu? So yeah. I'm very, care. I'm, I'm very sort of careful about that.
2: I'm stating the obvious here, but for generations, appropriation worked the other way in American kitchens. White chefs, or even just white families, took credit for Black chefs' food. Martha Washington, for example, has a cookbook, and it's assumed that most of the recipes came from her and George Washington's enslaved chef, Ulysses. Another of the most influential chefs in America was named James Hemings. He was the enslaved cook of Thomas Jefferson, who trained in France, and then back at Monticello, he created and popularized some of the most American foods of all—ice cream, french fries, and mac and cheese. Barbecue has black roots, from West Africa. The first American pitmasters were enslaved men. Rice was a crop that America's economy was built on, but the people who knew how to harvest it were Africans displaced here in the slave trade. Tons of crops were harvested by African Americans. If you want to know more, I've put links in the show notes. These histories have been meticulously reconstructed by cooks like Edna Lewis in the 1970s and scholars like Dr. Jessica B. Harris today. But there's a lot we'll never know. You just sort of have to grasp your way back. And sometimes you have to fill in the blanks. Like Mishama, we'll go to Georgia's border islands to learn from the Gullah Geechee historians. They're descendants of enslaved people from West Africa who've been able to preserve a lot of their culture. Or she'll go to a rice field to see how heirloom rice grows. And she'll take her team out with her so they really feel what farming was like hundreds of years ago. They did this a few years ago at a famous farm called Anson Mills.
1: And so we went out and we we just harvested like this like small corner of rice. And then um, we milled it and we did it the old fashioned way, um, which basically is like, ripping the rice kernels off of the stalks and then sifting it and then grinding it and then sifting it again and grinding it and sifting wow. it again until the rice kind of, um, the germ of the rice comes out. And then we also did it um, through a mill. So we, we were able to do it both ways, which is exhausting. Okay. It's, it's exhausting. And it's almost like you kind of want to keep going, but you're just like, I'm not built for this. Like, yeah. like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this, like the, I don't think the last two generations have been built for this kind of work. <laughs> right.
2: There's this story Mashama told that to me really encapsulates the way that she connects the dots between place and history. It's about pot liquor, which is the nutritious juice that's left over in the pot after you cook greens. The Great now uses pot liquor as a stock for a lot of its dishes. The story starts with a visit from Mashama's family.
1: My mom and dad and my family came to visit me for Christmas and my mom brought Christmas dinner, which was basically like collard greens and, you know, cornbread dressing and like oxtails. She, I don't know, she like, <laughs> and then like we ate and then she packed up everything and left. And then she left like a bag of collard greens for <laughs> yeah. me and she put it in the freezer. I think my sister packed it up. And I told him, I said, don't, don't leave anything. And then I think a week later, I went into the freezer, and there was like a bag of frozen collard greens, and I was so excited. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, great, it was cooked and everything. It had like smoked turkey in it and everything like that.
2: Mishama had actually been in Austin, getting a new restaurant ready for opening. It's called the Diner Bar at the Thompson Hotel, and it opened this summer. So she had been approving business plans and hiring staff instead of her usual daily work at the Grey. So I'm feeling a little rusty
1: and I'm feeling a little sorry for myself so I wanted to make some food. So I didn't have any groceries, but I had a pantry. So I had the the greens in the pantry. I had some shrimp on the shell, add some oil, add some granulated garlic. (laughs) And I decided to make some, food. and I had some white beans. And I decided that I've been wanting some lima beans. So I decided to like soak the beans, cook the beans, add the greens to the beans. I had a bunch of pot liquor from that. And I decided to poach the shrimp in some, you know, in some fortified, Oil with shrimp shells and garlic and spices and some pot liquor.
2: Mashama mm. says they usually poach shrimp in a court bouillon with wine, lemon, and herbs. She hadn't thought to use the pot liquor before at all. But as she was cooking, she realized people before her probably had. All this stuff is from Georgia. They're ingredients that black families have been using for generations greens, shrimp, beans. She said she could see someone on the Georgia coast eating this dish 200 years ago.
1: And it just resonated with me that this was probably something that someone has made before, Mm -hmm. you know. But I've never seen it. I've never made it before. I've never eaten it in that combination before. So I think like those, like for me, like that's how dishes come to be, you know? Yeah. Like I think about a base ingredient, I think about a beet, or I think about a green, or I think about a, a lamb, or a shrimp, or something. And then I start to think about what's around it at that time. Mm-hmm. So this is the middle of the winter dish, so I wanted something stewed, I wanted something that was gonna cook slow. So mm. it's like the ingredients, I think, promote the thought of the, what's creative.
2: It can be easy to lose track of the larger meaning of Mishama's work when you're talking about greens and shrimp and rice, but she's part of a movement that's become important not just for reclaiming Black food, but for reclaiming Black history. Stephen Satterfield has become integral to this movement. He's best known for High on the Hog, which is a Netflix docuseries that explores the roots of African-American food in America. He made it with Dr. Jessica B. Harris, who's one of the most respected scholars of Black culinary history, and it's based on her book of the same name. He also has an entire media company called Whetstone, which is dedicated to tracing food origins back to their pre-colonial roots. I really like Stephen's work, so I called him. He describes this movement that he and Mishama are part of as reclamation. Uh, Stephen, what do you like about what Mishama Bailey is doing?
0: Mashama is, um, I guess, a poster child for this mm. reclamation cuisine. Growing up in Georgia, I have always appreciated her sensibilities on Southern food that move beyond tropes into a broader lexicon of low country and coastal um in her cooking. Yeah, I mean there's a lot there's <laughs> you know yeah. there's a lot to be said yeah. for her actual talent um <laughs> which is obviously immense um but in terms of just her sensibilities Mashama was someone who was had this very formal training mm-hmm. and made a very conscious choice to go back to her roots and explore her identity through food. And it was and continues to be um, really inspiring. And I think in a lot of ways, she was really ahead of the curve on that.
2: One of the things that she and I were talking about was there were many things that she was obsessed with. Pot liquor she had made a... Mm. Stock out of pot liquor. and she was really interested in. She was obsessed. She's, in her words, she was obsessed with hearts of palm mm. because it stopped growing in that region. So she's trying to get a a farmer to help her grow it again.
0: Love it, yeah. Bringing it yeah. back and making what was lost central. Um, that's that's the reclamation. You know, that is what this work is about, and in the context of identity. It's really hugely important, um, Mm. especially because in the physical realm, in our society, the members of society who are displaced are the most marginalized. From slavery to gentrification and every stop in between. There's never been a moment in the history of this country where Marginalized people, specifically Black people, weren't being displaced from the place that they previously stood. It's how we got here. That's our origin story. And it continues. And so when you have people who are involved in reclamation work, it's work that corrects the historical record. Right. And it inserts People in the story who were there but were not heard from.
2: I asked Stephen why this reclamation movement is gaining traction now, specifically in the food world.
0: It was bound to happen this moment in a certain way. Mm. Um, if you grew up over the last 30 years, um, you've watched a, the rise of a food culture that was. Previously, I want to almost say non-existent or very, mm-hmm. very, very subcultural, and we garnered a lot of our um, sensibilities and food uh, from Europe mm-hmm. and from France in particular, and this just this still shows up in every <laughs> in almost every like fine dining restaurant you go to, but the entire way of talking about food, the vocabulary the way that the kitchen is set up, Uh, words like chef de cuisine or stagiaire, or sous chef, the brigade Mm -hmm. system, you know, these are all things that are derivative of a very specific worldview of what's good. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is sort of unsurprising through um, different iterations of social movements, social upheaval, that people would begin to say, you know what, I actually am good on this. I actually don't want to play by your rules anymore. I don't want to hear your stories anymore. I didn't grow up eating your food. Right? I just assimilated or I was forced into assimilating to eat this food.
2: Stephen says he hopes this work will inspire people to ask questions of their industries too but that food is a particularly good lens for re-examining our history. Stephen, I'm curious, like, your medium is food. Every medium can do something unique. Um, What can food do?
0: I mean, what can't it do is a much simpler (laughs) question. It can do everything. It's the cheat code. We all have to eat. Mm -hmm. Right. It's the only thing that we all have to do. And so to me, that right there is like a place to really, really um, begin thinking about the ways that we are related and dependent upon one another. We're not talking about something that is not tangible, that's that can't be touched. We're not talking about an idea We're talking about something substantive and soulful that in the right context and with the right people is the foundation for the most powerful uh, connections that we have with other humans in life. And those connections are formed around the table. And those memories are formed around the table.
2: In June, Mashama accepted this year's James Beard Award for Outstanding Chef. I watched the ceremony broadcast online and the who's who of the food world was there, all dressed up. It really was like the Oscars. Hers was the last award of the night. Mashama hugged Jono for a really long time and then she walked on stage.
1: From my ancestors, to my parents, to my mentors, to my business partner, Um, To my chefs, thank you for supporting me, and and thank you for betting on black. (laughs) Black and brown folks, immigrants, mom-and-pop shops have been bubbling underneath the surface of this industry, working hard for a long time, establishing our place in American food. And today, a little black girl or a little black boy, they can see themselves in a space that they have never seen before and do what they could not think is possible. And until just a few minutes
2: ago, that was me. So thank you. Watching the ceremony reminded me of something Mashama said when I was in Savannah. We discussed her influences, her creative process, the everyday challenges of running the gray, And I wanted to know what she wanted out of her legacy. You know, like big picture, what do you want to have done?
1: I definitely have this imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. and I don't know if it's because I'm a woman or because I'm an imposter or because (laughs) like, I feel like I've got, like this all have, this all has happened so fast. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm, I'm just now like owning that and stepping into the fact that I have done my own work to be where I'm at, Mm -hmm. you know? I, you know, like, I wasn't a restaurant rat. I did not come from a privileged family. Um, I did not eat out a lot. So, like, all of this comes from just my family, you know? It all comes from just oral dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just, you know, an experience, too, and good food and the home and all that stuff. But your journey can be whatever it is it doesn't have to be the same as someone else's in order to get to be successful yeah you know yeah. and I just I think talking about that I think is important
2: and yeah. owning that is important if imposter was out the window what would you say I mean, I mean I
1: deserve it yeah I deserve everything I've worked for yeah. and I'm and I'm gonna keep thriving and striving to be better and better.
2: That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. I've linked to my profile of Mishama in the show notes and more reading if you're interested. She and Jono wrote a memoir together called Black, White, and the Gray, which I really recommend. And Stevens Media Company, Whetstone, has a beautiful magazine and a suite of podcasts. I've linked to those too. If you'd like to get in touch, we would love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. You can find the show on Twitter at ftweekendpod, or find me on Instagram or Twitter at Lila Rapp. And if you really want to help the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That is super helpful in helping people find us. Also in the show notes is a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT, including 50% off a digital subscription. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link to get the discounts. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my incredible team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Big shout out this week to Neve Rowe, our former intern who helped a lot with this episode. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer and special thanks go, as always, to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Have a wonderful weekend and we'll find each other again next week.